Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Women's Room with Kath Kobach. Hope you're having a great afternoon. Uh, this afternoon in the Women's Room with me, I've got Holly Baker-Boljevac, who hails from Braidwood. Um, I asked Holly to come on to have a chat in the Women's Room with us this afternoon uh, because she's one of these super fascinating women that I seem to know a lot of. <laughs> um, Holly works as a therapist, as a coach, as a counsellor, and that's just the beginning of the things that Holly does. Um, I also would describe her as just being a big, huge ball of energy and uh, inspiration to lots and lots of um, other women and other people. So welcome, Holly. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Kat. That's very nice. <laughs> that's all right. You're welcome. Um, so... Holly, let's start off just a little bit. Um, so on you have, I was just talking to you about how you have such an interesting website and so many things on there. And um, I wondered, you uh, on your website, uh, which is called the Institute for Self-Crafting, um, you talk a lot about living a self-crafted life. And I just wondered if you could explain for people what, what, what does a self-crafted life actually look like? <laughs> well, I think I've got an actual definition on there, but off the top of my head, I'm not entirely sure what that says. Uh, but it's all around, you know, what, where it comes from actually is because, you know, people talk about self-development and self-mastery and that idea of self-mastery is almost like there has to be a, a one ending outcome and then like you're done. Uh, whereas I think life is actually just like this artisan kind of reality of crafting lots of different elements into your life and and you, you're constantly making it a little bit more what you want it to be you know a little bit tastier a little bit text more texture or whatever so it, it brings in the idea of craft just like we would think of doing craft with our hands but also like to craft ourselves so that there isn't just one outcome we just keep building all the things that we love into our life yeah, and so what are some of the elements that you think that people can bring together when they're doing this sort of like crafting as you describe it? Well, it really depends on the person, I guess. Yeah. Like it's, you know, it's it's about finding the places where you are limiting, where either where you're limited or where you're limiting yourself and then trying to make some some further space, right? So to get to those unlimited places. So that really depends on what where the person's at, like, if they limit themselves by having really mean conversations with themselves about who they are, then that's where we want to unlimit. Or if they're limited um, financially, then we want to see if we can work to unlimit that. You know, it really could be anything. And each, like people know where their limits are, right? They know where they feel edgy and uncomfortable and like, I just want to push further there. That's where you start. Mm. Um, Holly, I'm just going to ask you if you can either speak a little bit louder or have you got your phone on speakerphone or are you speaking into your yeah. phone? I'm on speaker. I can put it just to my ear. Yeah, I'm just having a little bit of trouble hearing you, so I'm not sure if it's coming through on the radio too well. How's this? Is this better? Um, yeah, that's probably a little bit better. Thanks, Holly. Um, yeah, so that's interesting about the... Um, you know, are people telling horrible stories, you know, about themselves to themselves? Because that's so common, isn't it, that really like our worst our worst enemy, or as we might say, you know, is ourselves and that we would never treat other people how badly we treat ourselves. Um, never. I, do you know, a client once told me that one of her friends said to her, she was, she was sort of attacking herself, and her friend said, don't you talk to, about my friend like that? And I just, that has sat with me a long time because it's like, 
we we all know we would never talk to each other like that, but we do it to to ourselves. But then if someone heard us do it to ourselves, they would just be like, no, don't do that. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's incredible. And so what are some of the ways that, you know, you can help people sort of try and overcome that negative um, self-talk in your practice? Hmm. Something about like having a relationship with self. I think, you know, it's like we could say to somebody, oh, you're supposed to just be compassionate to yourself. Just be more compassionate. But it does, it never works like that. So it's just, it's kind of a step-by-step process of, um, noticing and becoming aware of how we speak to ourselves. Also getting sort of some of the lineage, right, like some of the threads of why we speak to ourselves like that. So that's that psychoanalytical developmental work of like how did your parents speak to each other, Who, you know, what happened to you as a child. Like we kind of unravel some of that, grieve that, kind of, come, you know, what's happened to us before and then, added layers of awareness and like um and also then envisioning what we would like to have so all of those pieces come together over time like it's like kind of taking all different threads turning them into this tapestry that looks like what you want it to be and then practicing that yeah so catching yourself when you do do the mean things to yourself Mm. and the practicing is the hard thing right yeah, well, that's the bit that you forget when you're actually in a reactive space where you're under stress. <laughs> like, mm. That's the last thing you do when you're in those states. <laughs> mm, mm, yeah, um, it really is like, I mean, we can sort of go to see therapists and, and counsellors and all the kind of thing, but and which is, you know, obviously fantastic and helpful. But when it comes down to it, and I mean, honestly, I'm struggling with this, this a little bit myself, is actually doing remembering to practice and to do the work and it's and it's something that that you have to try and do all the time it's not something that you're going to you know take this pill for a week and then you're going to be better (laughs) nothing like that you know it's like a constant thing and um it's it's really really challenging and it doesn't necessarily bank either like just because you do it a lot for four weeks then if you have a particularly reactive period you don't necessarily have those in the bank for the next one like it's got to be constant and to a point until it becomes habit and we you know the the real shift is anchored but that takes time you do 40 years of you know most of us as adults we do 40 years of doing it one way and then suddenly try and flip it like that's a lot of reps you've got of being mean to yourself before that's just going to shift over so it takes a little bit of extra effort yeah, exactly. A lot of reps. So it's like, you know, a muscle that you've kind of exercised to the max over the years. And, you know, I've, I've uh, learnt that the brain can be sort of retrained and that new neurons can develop and you can break those old connections. But um, like you say, over 40 years or longer of continually doing something that way, that to reverse it, although not impossible, um, is something that does take quite a quite a lot more reps, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. Fortunately, it doesn't have to be another 40 years to get to the other side, but certainly more than just a few days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that, would, that would be bad. So, um, Holly, uh, I just want to go back, um, I guess, to where you became interested in... Um, I guess helping other people in this sort of counselling therapist way, uh, was was there some kind of any defining moment for you that you thought, oh, I'm going to go and be a therapist or was it just a natural kind of like trajectory for you or what what sort of happened uh, with that? Yeah, I 
I usually just say, well, my mum was a hippie. (laughs) (laughs) Sort of led me to, you know, that self-development sort of new agey kind of stuff. I was always around women's circles and things. And I I remember all soon, like, when I found something good, I wanted to share it with someone else. Like, so I'd like, if I had a good book, I had to keep it because I want, um, someone might want to borrow it and it would help them as well. So it was always just like in my field. Um, And then... When I was an adult, I started doing my own circles and my own sort of, um, you know, one-to-one work, but more in line with, like, say, tarot readings or um, bushflower essences and things like that from that natural health perspective too. That was a big part of my early adulthood training. Um, And then, so I did that for lots of years, and then it was only about mm, five years ago that I thought, if I want this work and my skills to be available to more people, then I need to have some official title. And so that's when I went and did counselling and I just found the most simplest uh, course I could do just so I could get a bit of paper <laughs> and then <laughs> just so I could actually hang a shingle and have some insurance and say, like, this is this has got a title now, this work. And I also wanted that so that it was accessible to people that, like, so that I could go through and maybe get grant funding or, you know, go into more agency work, which I've since realised I'd never want to work in an agency that I've, I've had a bit of an experience in that and didn't enjoy it. But having access to grants as a counsellor has been really great because it means I, I can make the work accessible to groups of people that might not be able to afford it as private practice. Mm, yes, so um, you mentioned to me that you were, you know, quite excited about what was going on with group therapy, I suppose, versus one-to-one um, uh, things. So, yeah, tell me tell me more about that. Yeah, that's another aspect. I just, like when I did get my counselling diploma or whatever it was, I was so aware that this, like there's just no way to make this accessible to everyone. Like one-to-one good therapy is difficult enough to find. Everyone's got a terrible story of a therapist that let them down or whatever. So if, number one, it's hard for people to find it. But then number two is like, can you afford it then, right? Because if someone's good, then their prices are going to go up and blah, blah. At the moment, we've got a huge um, overburden in our mental health um, industry in Australia at least. And so just recently I was talking to a supervisor and kind of, you know, lamenting about all this and she just said, this, this, is the mo- this is the moment in time where we get to have a radical political act where we say one-to-one therapy is not the answer and we can move into these group spaces where it does become more affordable for people and we're still, they're still getting the skills and they're getting the delivery and they're getting able to connect to other people that are like them and, you know, coming from that women's circle kind of space, I think that's super important. So I'm very excited about moving therapy into more groups again. Great. So for people who aren't familiar with with what the concept of women's circle is, how does um, that uh, relate to the group therapy and what, in what ways would that kind of make it, um, make it a way that would work well for people if you've yeah. never heard of a women's circle? Yeah. So with, well, well, how, I don't know how everyone does women's circles. How I do women's circles is that it's a, it's a really well held space, but preferably by a therapist or someone with the same kind of skill that, you know, understands all of the boundaries and the relationships and all the dynamics within um, people relating to each other. And then we usually have some sort of theme that we're all discussing in, in a way that's, uh, 
that's relevant to the people that are in the circle and that where they can share their own experience. And the magic that happens there is that as you explain your experience, it's like it's speaking of my experience too. And so it either it either acts like a mirror and so it, there's this feeling in me of like, oh, you get me, right? So there's that connection. Or the other side of it is to have somebody in the group who has a similar experience but a really different perspective can be just as like overwhelmingly, oh, my gosh, I didn't realise that it could be like this. And so then how that affects us. And then, of course, everything in between those two spaces. So that witnessing of other people's stories and experience and, you know, yeah, stories and experience is really powerful because it reminds us of our common humanity um, and, of course, mammals are designed to be in groups, not on our own. So we that, that connection that's built just from hearing each other speak and witnessing each other's experience is so healing and so powerful. And so that's what happens in my women's circles and that's what happens in group therapy. Mm, um, so the group therapy you, you would be planning to doing would be, would it be all in person like that, like a women's circle, or would you do you think it would also work online? I'm starting online. Yeah, a lot of people I see are all over Australia. So I really wanted to make that. And again, it's all about accessibility. I've actually found in a small community like like where you are, Kath, and where I am, it's it, groups don't necessarily work because of that like super vulnerable space where we're witnessing each other and we're uh, coming, you know, we could be coming into some pretty deep work and that's not always comfortable if then tomorrow you see someone in the supermarket checkout. Mm. So um, I found over time, and that's part of the reason why I'd stopped doing a lot of group work because it wasn't having the same sort of impact that I had witnessed when I lived in in a bigger city, like when I was in Canberra. So, But this way, like to be able to do it online with people that are already really uh, comfortable with the idea of therapy and have been working with me for some time with a lot of people. So it's kind of like a, it's a step through from the built experience with being in therapy and then they can step that out to be more in a community space but it's they don't have to see that person at the supermarket tomorrow they only see each other online yeah indeed I I totally hear where you're coming from I did hold a few circles in in the sort of local area to me and I well I didn't really come across that problem but I could see that um, it could uh, when people do when everybody you know in a small community knows everybody else, or at least they think they do, <laughs> you know, that um, some people may be, of course, reticent to to share kind of honestly, and um, you know, sharing honestly uh, and authentically is sort of the basis of of that healing in that uh, circle space, isn't it? Yeah, totally. Like if you can't show up today, then you're not really there anyway. That's kind of perpetuating the problem that we have in a society that doesn't really hold us in who we are Mm, yeah yeah and also what you're saying about you know humans are uh should be or humans are designed evolutionarily to live in groups and of course you know almost all of us are not doing that anymore um it it really sort of leads to a disconnection I suppose. So for me, I mean, I've experienced the first time I met you, in fact, I think was at a circle you were holding in a little caravan in the forest there near Braidwood. In a bus, in a Bedford bus, in a Bedford bus. Uh, Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, (laughs) And it was, 
really, really welcoming, really nice. And um, I took my uh, one of my children along, I think, at the same time. Um, and that was one of my early, uh, not my first, but one of my earlier kind of experiences um, of circles at yours, which I found was really quite amazing. And actually, one thing, this reminds me, what I, I recall that you did in that circle was play the, the drum, the frame drum, and take us on what's called a, a drum journey. And then I have seen that on your site you're running, or on Facebook, you're running a women's combined drumming and um, horses workshop. And I just thought, wow, that sounds incredible. Would you, would you like to share a little bit about where the idea for that came from and what's that going to involve? I'm so excited about this. Uh, so... Anki, who I think you know as well, is the drum maker facilitator. Uh, and I just reached out to her because I noticed that she had done some sort of um, integrated work with other people, other women. And I just thought, oh, how amazing would it be for women to make their drums and connect to horses? Like for me, everything's about connecting to horses. Um, and so like, you know, knowing that we've all got horses in our lineage, like there was a time on this planet where horses were doing all the work for everybody. Uh, and, you know, most, not all, but most girls grow up just loving horses from afar or spending their whole, you know, childhood with horses. So it's just one of those connecting points that I think, you know, and, and also, like, I have a lot of friends who, who wish they'd been horse people when they were younger and never had that opportunity. You know, they had the photos on the wall of the horses, but they never got to actually be near them. So it just brings so much of that, you know, the, the whimsy of horses and the, the wanting to reach out to them, but then to do it in such a sacred space as making a drum as well uh, and being able to sort of almost titrate the two experiences and move between them so it's like I'm you know from what I understand of Anki's work with the drum making it's very much about uh, mapping out your creative process and then on the other side of that is when we work with a herd of horses we're mapping out our relational patterns and so what's it like when we map out relational patterning within our own our creative patterning um, so it just kind of gives us a few extra perspectives right a few yeah, a few other ways to look at what's happening for us. And you do all that outside in nature, which, of course, is beautiful. Um, yeah, it sounds incredible. So relational patterning, that's not a phrase I've heard before. Could you explain that a little more? Oh, maybe I made it up. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, so, I mean, it, for me it comes from that sort of what I spoke up before, that psychoanalytical developmental stuff. So when we watch a herd of horses, they all have their own personalities, obviously, and they all behave in particular ways and different dynamics between each one. And, um, you know, we at a simple level, we could just sit there and watch that dynamic and start to reflect on how that shows up in our own lives. Like, oh, who do I know that behaves like that really you know, but driven mare that's pushing everybody around or who do I like is, is, or how do I show up like the gelding who just kind of hangs around the back and doesn't move into the herd too much or, you know, so there's ways to reflect that in the way that we relate with people. And then you could take that right through to like, well, which of my family members are here in this herd and how do I, how do I feel about them? That horse that's being like, uh, stubborn, you know, a lot of people use the word stubborn for horses. That horse, uh, she reminds me of my grandmother. And so what am I going to do with that? You know, so there's just so many ways we can um, 
take our own relational patterns into account just by watching them. But then, of course, when you step into the into the arena with them, then now, now we've got a one-to-one relational thing happening too. And so all of the nuances of the relationship, you know, if I'm stepping up to a horse that I feel uncomfortable about because she reminds me of my grandmother that I don't like, well, there's a whole lot of work to do there, yeah. And I can notice my own internal experience that's happening uh, and and connect to that and, and bring awareness to myself and how I behave in those relational dynamics, and et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Oh, it sounds beautiful. I When you were talking about how most girls, you know, either want to have a horse or in some way involved in horses, of course I also wanted a horse and um, <laughs> I never got one, I must say. <laughs> that, um, I remember my father coming home from the pub what have you and saying oh that he'd found this bloke who who had a horse that we could buy for six hundred dollars and this was in the you know early 80s so six hundred dollars was a pretty substantial amount of money Um, Mm. and I just recall my my mum saying oh no you know because I'm not going to end up feeding and looking after this horse da 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 like I guess she she just anticipated that it would end up being her job and not mine I'm not really sure if that was a thing or whether we couldn't afford it but I was like oh I felt like I was so close and then just missed it but I did used to go yeah I used to go to friends houses and and you know ride their horses a little bit and just just even being near a horse and just smelling it and and stroking its head or anything is just oddly calming, isn't it? Right. So amazing. I see this meme go around all the time about how horses' um, vibrational field goes out a certain distance and in doing that it it calms us and, you know, affects our heart rate and stuff. I don't know what the science is behind that, but I do know that when, when you move in with a herd or even just with one horse, there's a because of their, um, like they're pretty chill most of the time, but they can jump straight to being really reactive because they're what we call a flight animal, right? They're, they're at risk to predators. So most of the time they're chill, but they have this ability to just be aware of their surroundings. And so if you're stepping into that, you have to be in a certain level of awareness. And you have to bring yourself out of reactive state because they just won't put up with it. They'll just leave. So there's something very powerful in that, in teaching us how to just be in the world. Mm. And so intertwining the horses and and the the drums, um, do you envisage that once the drums are made, you'll be sort of playing them with the horses or is it not really? That's what I'm hoping. Hoping that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, so there'll be opportunities for them to, for the women to sort of go in and out. So they'll they'll have sort of a horse session, and then they'll go and do some work around the drum, and you know, sort of sort of be back and forth. It's a three day retreat, uh, and then I'm hoping that at the end of it, we all come together and we can kind of sit in the paddock and drum and just kind of witness the horses and see what they do. Like they're very curious animals. They will either come toward and and want to be part of it or they'll just be like what the hell are you doing um and then there's there's lessons in that too right and to like if i'm sitting and drumming and hoping the horses are going to come and then they don't what happens inside me and how does that reflect like my reality in the world and there's so many ways that doesn't really matter what the horse does there's so many ways that we can still do our own work within that that's why they're very powerful i think mm, well you know, congratulations on on filling it up, and I'm sure it'll be fantastic. Um, so, tell me a bit. 
I like to talk about drums, you know, because I really like my <laughs> drum. What's your sort of drum making experience, and what do you um, get out of, of 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 having a drum and using a drum, like either in your personal life or do you also use it in your work? I mean, how how important is the drum to you? Yeah, uh, well, my first drum was a bought drums. It was a, a group of people that I knew sort of chipped in and bought it for me together uh, and it was an oval shape made by the guy from Wolf Drums. It was the first oval he ever made because, of course, I wanted it to be more like a yoni shape or a, a vulva shape uh, and that's all decorated with henna and it's very beautiful and that's what I generally use uh, in groups with other people. It's a goat skin, uh, deer skin drum, sorry, so it's quite light and you think about how deer move through the world like it's it's very pretty and light uh, but when I made my own drum I actually made it with Tallulah Goff and it was a horse drum so it was actually made out of horse raw hide and Tallulah, Tallulah and I shared the hide because obviously a horse hide's quite large so we got two drums out of that and we say that our drums are sisters right like they're, they're from the same um, animal uh, and I love that drum, but it's very heavy, as in the sound is much heavier, it's deeper, and I find it's quite intense for people if they're not used to working uh, in that way. So I don't usually use that one in public. Um, and I go through stages with the drum, like to answer that question around how important is it, I think it's very important for women to be involved with frame, frame drums and hand drums. Uh, I think it's a political act to really claim an ability to make sound and take up space um, in a sound way, right, like in a noisy way. But also it's, um, it, it connects us to our very ancient lineage of women who made rhythm together uh, to celebrate, to honour sacredness, to connect with the, the heartbeat of the earth or the heartbeat of other mammals. Um, and, yeah, I think there's a lot to be learned there. I'll pause there so you can ask me more. <laughs> I don't know which way to go. <laughs> I'm just enjoying listening to you talk about the drum. <laughs> so um, the, the drum was then originally uh, a women's instrument from, like, historically speaking? I mean, that's my understanding. I, I would would send anyone that wants to know more about it to the book by Lane Redman called When Women Were Drummers. That's where most of my education comes from around that. Uh, and she in that book she really connects the agricultural... Um, agricultural, the first agricultural women um, with that across that fertile crescent area of Europe and Asia to to the drum, and she talks about how the the sieve for the grain. I'm not going to get these words right, but the the sieve for the grain that you know, if we, let's imagine there's a grain field, like a paddock full of grain, and we're collecting the seeds to make flour. We're using this particular sieve, uh, and that is. Exactly, it looks exactly the same as what we imagine a frame drum looks like now. So it's round, it's quite sort of shallow, and it's got some sort of uh, hide or weave over the front of one of it. And she sort of connects those two and says that, like, it's almost like the drum is a representation of that connection to the land and to the cycles of nature and growing food and cooking food and all of those things. Um and, the, and, and vice versa, right? And so then the, the grain collecting is a symbolism of women's ability to hold rhythm and the sacredness of that. So it's like this sort of infinity loop of or feedback loop um, of, of where we've been as women before. And then, of course, it's, there's a whole history of um, that being taken away uh, by the 
by political forces that might look like churches. <laughs> and so women not being allowed to make rhythm, particularly in public. And so when we say, like, it's a political act for us to claim space with sound, that's a piece of that, right, of, of us being able to um, use something that was used by ancient women so long ago to hold space and, and make sacred for women to be able to bring that into now is very powerful, I think. Mm, absolutely. And, and of course, in some parts of the world, you know, women are still in that same state of not being allowed to use their voices or make sound, you know, so it's not even um, uh, something that... hasn't even ended. That, yeah. Yeah, from... from um, it's not even something that all women can do these days. So uh, it's a nice idea, I suppose, to think perhaps, you know, about the women who are still unable to, to use their voices when we, when we do drum. For me, I find the drum is very a healing kind of thing. And, you know, even without ascribing historical significance or, or spiritual significance or anything to the drum and just literally sitting with the drum and just hitting it, <laughs> on my lap can actually I find you know make me it just makes me feel better after about 10 minutes if I'm if I'm feeling tired or headachey I might use it as a break even from computer or it's just that vibration itself without anything else just the simplicity of that vibration you know enters the body and in some way I think it must calm the nervous system well and I think it's that resonance thing it's like what we said about the horse's heartbeats and being in their field the drum you know, when you when you have a, a regular rhythm that you sit and you're just paying your full attention to, you can't help but become resonant with that, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I've worked out why I couldn't hear before because I had my microphone on and I hear you very clearly when it's off. So I hope that I wasn't deafening everybody <laughs> earlier <laughs> by having you turned up full bore. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, you're on Yes FM if you've just tuned in listening to Holly Baker-Boltrevuk from Braidwood talking all things from counselling to horses to drums and a whole lot of other things. So I just wanted to change tack a little bit. I know you did reference, um, Holly, earlier about... Uh, you know, being raised in women's circles. And there's this lovely uh, quote on your, well, quote by you, <laughs> I'll quote you on your website where you say you were raised between the dojo and women's circles. And I thought that I just really, really loved the way that sound. Now, speaking of someone who only discovered women's circles in her late 40s, um, I can't really imagine <laughs> what life was like being brought up within them. So was your... You said your mum was a hippie. So would, did she used to run circles or she just used to take you along with them? And what age, like what's your earliest memory of being in circle? You know, in the late 90s, there was a bit of a new agey burst. <laughs> well, there was where I grew up anyway. And um, so certainly when I was very small, there was nothing like that. We were a very normal 80s family that went to church on Sundays and, um, you know, ate chops and mashed potatoes for dinner. Uh, but sort of when I was hitting around 10 or 11 or 12, I think, um, my parents separated and then my mum sort of, I don't know, in whatever way you do when you start to explore yourself in new ways, kind of landed in the massage, Reiki, new age kind of circles, organic food, um, yeah, just really starting to think outside the box, I guess, of how they had been grown up or brought up. 
So that just brought all these women into my life that were like, you know, wild women in many ways. A lot of them, I think, were in the same kind of phase of their life where they'd separated from partners or were finding a new part of themselves, a new, a new way to live their lives. Um, and that was sort of around that late 90s era. And, um, yeah, so there was often just, like, events where all the women were together or almost, like, uh, impromptu circles in a lot of ways, you know, just women coming and gathering around the kitchen table with food and talking about all these things that had never been appropriate to talk about five years before when there was men around. Um, and uh, I was going to add something else to that, but I can't remember, so ask me another question. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Story of my life, and you know the you know about the whole um, uh, memory loss of words in perimenopause, right? Too Holly. Mm. <laughs> yes, let's blame that. Yeah. <laughs> let's blame that. Um, and what about the dojo half of the equation? Oh, so because it was a very small town where I grew up in Victoria, in Gippsland, and the only option to do an activity, like an after-school activity, was a karate school that came to the town when I was three, and uh, we had like a demonstration, and I just thought it was the best thing in the world, and I started, and within, I think, a few months, my dad had started, and then eventually he became the local teacher. So my whole childhood up until he left around that sort of um, end of primary school time was just all about karate you know we were at every weekend we were at some sort of karate event there was um, a lots of you know I, I was very lucky in that sense that because I was the child of one of the instructors I was always in these instructor uh, zones so lots of mentors were just always around and I sort of you know grew up around that um, organization of people in a way right so then when that finished then I moved into the the more women's space so it's like one just sort of wove into the other and now in my life I have managed to find a way to weave both together <laughs> instead of being, having them separate. Mm. And so you do that by still running karate or some kind of martial fitness classes I believe? Yeah I do I have a little school in Braidwood and um, it's a so so after I did karate and after my dad left, I moved into taekwondo, which is a very similar style. Uh, so I've always done stand-up martial arts. So what I mean by that is you're standing up and you're punching it or striking and blocking as opposed to what we see in an MMA fight now where people are on the ground a lot. I've never done any of that sort of work because it's always been standing up. Uh, and then in my adult uh, age, I also got into natural movement through MoveNap and a bit of CrossFit, and so I've kind of made a curriculum that combines those two. So uh, a lot of movements like humans have always made and then crossed into that stand-up martial art. And then, of course, because I can't not do anything without thinking about the nervous system because that's so much of my everyday work as a therapist, that's really interwoven too. So I, I basically use my little martial arts school as a experiment ground to to be experimenting with like how nervous systems work and how we can go from reactive states to non-reactive and you know I think a lot about the difference between violence and fighting in the way that violence is something that happens without consent but fighting is something where both parties consent uh, and there's a there's a set of rules and there's a set of skills that go with it so all of that I just I love experimenting with and basically just have all these options for these little people to play with martial arts and natural movement and we see what we get out of it. Mm. Oh, it sounds like a lot of fun, not just fun, but also almost, you know, quite healing as well uh, because people don't move their bodies 
you mentioned natural movement and mostly the natural movement that people are doing these days is sitting on their bums, <laughs> you yes. know, what they call sitting the new smoking or something. Um, yeah. I think they've been saying it for a few years. So that sounds great. And is it just for kids or do you run this for adults as well? No, I did. Day. I was doing a, an adult class for a while, but it just there's only so many hours in the week, Kath. So <laughs> really? <laughs> now what I'm doing is um, just sort of seasonal day retreats for women, and I love that. So we get like a whole day to go deep dive into the whole movement, you know, fighting movement, all of it. Um, and, you know, so for the first time, some women will come and, and, and punch something for the first time and know that they're doing it properly because they're getting given proper skills. And um, so that's, I, I really love that work, actually. I, that excites me too. So yeah. I'll be doing that a lot more next year as well. I'm totally signing up for the next one of those. Mm. <laughs> that sounds fantastic because I don't think I've ever really um, punched anything. Um, well, maybe my brothers as we were growing up, but, you know, that was so long ago that I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, and it probably wasn't done that well. <laughs> and, and, and of course not, and then it would have just, you know, been retaliated by a much harder one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so that would be the violent side, not yeah. the fighting side. <laughs> yeah, 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 right, yeah. Um, well, that's all great, and um, it made me laugh that you mentioned about, you know, not being that many hours in the day because you were someone I think who probably feels all of them so well. Um, it's just just really incredible. So, um, yeah, if you've just tuned into SFM, we're talking to Holly Baker-Bolshevak um, about a whole lot of different things. And so one of the other things that you deal with is or one of your backgrounds and you said already was um natural and um what's called ancestral health um and i just wondered if you could tell us a bit more about what do you sort of you mean by ancestral health and and how has that um affected your life oh that's such a big question i know right (laughs) so what i mean by ancestral health is looking at what people have done forever so all if no matter who we are and where we come from on the planet right now, if we go back far enough, we'll find things that humans did to stay well. Uh, I don't think that humans actively were thinking, if I do this, I stay well. But the way that we've adapted and, and um, yeah, adapted over time to be well and to be the humans that we now have kind of got to at this apex of humanity, whatever it's going to be, uh, that's what I'm talking about. So, you know, things like, well, humans have always had a relationship with the sun and the earth. We've grown our own food or foraged our own food. We haven't eaten it out of boxes from a supermarket under lights all the time. So just thinking like that is how we start to move into the ancestral health space and the natural movement's a piece of that, like how have humans always moved and then how do we bring that into our everyday life? And this became really important to me because in 2008, very quickly, I had a, a very... Um, I had some random virus that nobody could diagnose, but it nearly killed me and I was in hospital for many days. And after I finally got out, uh, I had a chronic viral sort of load for many years after that. And every time I went to see a doctor about it, they'd just say, oh, yeah, you've got chronic fatigue, go home and sleep. And, of course, anyone who's ever experienced any chronic long-term illness knows that go home and sleep is only one piece of it. So over time I was just researching and, you know, like I said, I'd, been involved with all the natural health stuff and none of that was really shifting anything either so I had to find something new and I was in that uh, kind of paleo world and crossfit world and sort of starting to go down that thinking around like how did humans evolve 
uh, and yeah, landed with a whole lot of, you know, like 52 steps actually around that, that eventually got rid of that chronic viral load. Now I'm really healthy and I've been healthy ever since, but it took a while. That's just really incredible. 50, 52 steps, did you say? So it's like you can have yeah, a, a so year long a, program. <laughs> 52 steps. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I wrote a book afterwards because everyone kept asking me, what are you learning this time? Like, what, you know, what are you doing? What's the new thing that you're doing or learning? Uh, so I ended up writing a book that was like not a scientific book, even though that's what I would have wanted. But I realized like every time I tried to explain the science to someone, they just roll their eyes and say, no, just tell me what to do. Like, just tell me the step. So I ended up writing a book of 52 steps that were the active steps to be self-crafted wellness um and now that book um that book like sold out of its publication but we have it as a course on my portal Mm. so that way people can still access it yeah no it sounds fascinating because um my son has recently been (laughs) i can't call it diagnosed because they say well, if they can't think of what's wrong, then they call it chronic fatigue syndrome um, mm. myself. So I would be super interested myself to uh, read that or, or find out about that um, mm. as okay, well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's the way. We also did a little few, I don't know when it was, it was a few months ago. I was just really aware of all the how there's a lot of people at the moment with post-viral loads from obviously what's been happening over the last few years. And so I did a little short three-session class around that and like ways to really hone in on what you need right now to get your body out of that post-viral load. And I think we'll have that up in the same portal over the next few weeks too. So that might be something to look at alongside that work. Yeah. And so for people listening, what uh, where can they find this portal, Holly? Uh, it's called Self-Crafted Life Portal. I don't know off the top of my head what the link is, but um, if they go to my website, which is Institute for Self-Crafting, there's a quiz and you do the quiz and it's really fun. It's like a choose-your-own-adventure. And as you do the quiz, it takes you to whatever is going to be the best option for you. So if you're looking for online courses about wellness, you're going to do that choose-your-own-adventure and the course will, the quiz will take you there and then it'll give you the exact link that you need. <laughs> oh, that does sound fun. So Institute for Self-Crafting. Crafting. Right. Yeah. People just probably Google that is the best way to find it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Holly. Um, So we've just got a couple of minutes left. I just also wanted to talk to you briefly about the um, Wise Women's Gathering, which I've mentioned a couple of times on this radio show before to different people. Um, I think that's because I think it's one of the most amazing things I've (laughs) experienced in my life. So you you are in charge of this uh, gathering which is held every year uh, up near Wiseman's Ferry. So, Holly, um, what was it that led you to to thinking, I have extra hours in my day and I'm going to use them to organise the Wise Women's <laughs> Gathering? What, like, what drew well, you to that so badly? <laughs> at the time, I did have extra hours in my day. Uh, I wasn't doing it. I think I was still studying as a counsellor, so I, hadn't, I wasn't working as much as I am now one-to-one. Uh, but I, I originally got involved with the gathering because I was the maiden circle facilitator. So I came on as someone who held the space for the young girls, the sort of nine, uh, 12 to 15-year-old girls, while the mums were in more educational sessions. So that's, that was my sort of into it. And then um, I think after maybe two years of the conference, 
the original organiser moved away and needed to move it on. So I said, yeah, sure, I could do that. (laughs) And it really felt at the time like it was, you know, it really brought a lot of my skills together. I mean, the holding space, the natural health, because we do have a really heavy herbal and holistic kind of element to that conference. So that was all there. And I've I've ran so many events and organised sort of communities and things in the past. So it just felt like everything kind of, you know, meeting, like all those crossroads meeting in one place. And I said, yeah, sure. Mm. Um, And so here we are a few years later, you know, after bushfires and COVID, and we're about to move into May 23 for the next conference. Yeah, so if people or if women are interested in finding out about that, which I can highly recommend, can't recommend it highly enough, uh, just probably Google Wise Women's Gathering. It's probably the best yeah, way to find wise, it, do you think? Wise Women Gathering, yeah. Wise women just gathering. Wise Women Gathering. It's just wisewomengathering.com. Mm, mm, yeah. Um, so for me, that's it's kind of a it's kind of a conference, but it's not a conference like any other conference you've been to. Um, yeah. And yeah, the word holistic, the, I suppose, you know, can be applied to it, but it's just so much more than than coming together to learn about different topics, isn't it? Well, and the reason that I really hold the term conference is because we have so many high level educators that present there, and you know from like they just have so much professional knowledge from that herbal wisdom or from that holistic wisdom and also women's mysteries. And so to me, it's really important to keep holding that field of it being a conference. So we didn't want people to think it was like um, like a festival, right? It's not a doof. It's not a festival. It really does have professional content. Um, and at the same time, the professional content is 100% accessible to people who don't have any training in the area as well. And that's really magic. I think there's, you know, people who, you know, mums who want to, want to use natural health for their kids can go and learn from people who are educating like high-level herbalists and get this information that they're going to use in their family for the rest of their family's lives. It's just, yeah, it's pretty magic. It's pretty powerful. Mm, yeah, it is. And the, the gathering together, I'd never been with that many women in one time uh, and with no men present. And it's such a different vibe uh, to me. I just found it was very, so welcoming, friendly and, um, yeah, a really, really beautiful space. So I'm really glad that you did take that job on and continued that tradition, Holly. That's that's at least one person. And I'm sure there's many more who are glad that you did. <laughs> it's yeah. a, it's such a powerful space. It's um yeah. If for women, a, a lot of the time I hear from women, they say, "Oh, but I've had issues with women in the past. I don't know if I would feel safe." Like we go into so much depth of. Uh, what's the word there's just so many methods that we're using to create a safe space so that women feel connected and not in competition within that space that it won't be like anything you've ever experienced with women before Mm, yeah the lack of competition i think is so such an important part of it and it's so supportive um that that sort of space as well i i really love it um well i'd like to you know keep chatting to you holly but it's nearly time for the news (laughs) (laughs) so i would leave it but is there is there if there is a message you know that you would like to leave people based on um who you are and what you do that you think could be a powerful message for for particularly women out there what's something that you'd say to them well, the subline of my institute is create a life that sets you free. And that is what I would give women. Like, I just, like, take that as a permission, not that you need my permission, but take it as permission that you're allowed to and ac- absolutely have access to be able to create a life that sets you free. 
Mm. Oh, beautiful. Oh, thank you very much, Holly. Thanks for speaking with us today on YASFM. Um, I wish you well for the future and have a great afternoon. It's such an honour. Thanks, Kath. You're welcome.